Tonight to the fifth lamentation, Lamentations number five. I appreciate the high schoolers redecorating the platform just for me. Wasn't really necessary, but I do nevertheless appreciate it. Let's pray. Father, help us to have a proper appreciation for the historical elements of our Bible of the way you have faithfully kept your word, whether it is to bless or to correct your people, a reminder to us that you do not change, a reminder to us of the seriousness with which you take our lives and conduct. And Father, we pray that we would understand and to the best of our ability through the power of your spirit to be able to enter into in this case the sufferings and the agonies of these your people at your hands and we pray this in Jesus name amen well of course we come tonight to the fifth of the laments the final book of lamentations which is not only the final book or the final chapter of the Lamentations, but functions as a little bit of a summary or a conclusion. Uh, Like the other laments, it is 22 verses long, uh, which corresponds to the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Unlike the other four, it is not alphabetical in its nature. It is not an alphabetical acrostic. And although it contains 22 verses, as do the other, well, at least three of the other laments, it is by far the shortest, and by Hebrew word count, not by English word count, but by Hebrew word count, although chapter 5, for five chapters, chapter 5 would be about 20% of the chapter volume, the the chapter itself is only about 10% of the volume of words that Jeremiah spoke. It is 22 verses of, sim- of single-line sentences, which in the Hebrew can be very short. So it is very compact, very condensed, and again, it is functioning as a bit of a summary. W- where do you go from where Israel is? Um, one of the, uh, I, give me some latitude in putting it this way, but one of the problems that Israel seemed always to have was, to, was a failure to appreciate the way they fit individually into the bigger picture of being God's covenant people. Uh, God really takes this up in the book of Ezekiel. 
He makes reference to this in the early days of the nation of Israel when he talks about visiting the sins of the fathers upon subsequent generations. That having been brought into this covenant, they are covenant people. And part of the protest of Israel was that they were being punished for things they did not do. And the reality is, folks, that there is a certain sense in which you could make that as a legitimate case. Whatever the failings of the present generation, which you can read about at the end of the book of Kings and Chronicles, they did not live five or six hundred years. They did not carry on centuries of Sabbath breaking in their own life. They contributed to it. They participated in it. But the judgment that is visited upon them is judgment that had been building upon the covenant people for centuries. And now God has, and I I keep reiterating this, and there's a sense in which it is almost impossible to, to capture the absolute devastation that has been visited upon these people. I mean, there's, there's just virtually nothing left. There is nothing left of the government. There is nothing left of the economy. There is nothing left of the religion. There is but a remnant of the people. And <clears throat> there they sit. The land is occupied by foreign armies. There is no neighbor who will come to their aid. They are just destitute, and they are destitute at the hands of their God. And it is Jeremiah's portion to be one who records the extent of the suffering. And the book functions as kind of an organized, orchestrated, well-thought-out, well-planned-out, systematic series of sadnesses. And we've seen them, I think, at least this is the way that I've approached it, that the first lament is the lament of the city of Jerusalem, not just Jerusalem, but it is how the city would view it, destitute and desolate. The Lord brings his lament that he had to bring this this judgment upon the Israelites, that's chapter 2. Jeremiah has to live through it. Although he is truly an innocent victim, his, his only crime has been to point out to the people the error of their ways. In chapter 4, the entirety of the citizenry is highlighted. So that again, folks, when you get to the end of the book, you have from A to Z, so to speak, in an orchestrated fashion, from every imaginable perspective, you just have this overwhelming sadness and this story of utter destruction and desolation. So there is no coming back from this in human means. The, the, the amount of time that it would take for the nation to recover is just generations. I mean, just, just to think of it from a demographic standpoint, how long would it take the people who remain to have enough children for them to grow into adulthood, to have enough children to repopulate the city and the nation as it once was? So the lament begins in chapter number five. We're going to track it along three themes that Jeremiah develops. 
The first one is, actually all of them, but <clears throat> the first one is what we would really expect to happen when you are brought to this point. When you are destitute and destroyed and virtually without human hope. Jeremiah begins in chapter number 5, verse number 1, by requesting God to act. Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Consider and behold our reproach. Which, again, folks, is just a... And I'm not trying to be overly dramatic for the sake of the message, but it is a pathetic and pitiful cry to the God who brought this, this devastation upon them. As, as if a child is being spanked by a parent and, and the child just finally says, look at what you're doing to me. How can you keep doing this to me? Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Consider and behold our reproach. And from there, in verse number two, right? remember what you did to us. And the idea there, folks, let me go back before I move on to the, to, to the second part. When, when Jeremiah calls upon the Lord to remember, almost always when the Old Testament uses a word in that kind of framework, right? Two words pop immediately to my mind. When the Bible uses a word like remember, or when the Bible uses a word like visit, Right? The idea is, remember is the, the idea is remember us and then act upon what you know. For instance, Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark and God made a wind to pass over the earth. God remembered and God acted. Genesis 9.15, God said, I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. When I see the bow, I will remember and it will impact my behavior. Genesis 19.29, it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. So it is a memory that results... In action, Genesis 30:22, God remembered Rachel and God hearkened to her and opened her womb. And it has, by the way, the same idea when it is twisted back upon the people of God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember it and then act in accordance with that memory. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So that when Jeremiah calls upon the Lord to remember, it's not just think about how bad we are and feel sorry for us. It is think about how bad we are and act in our behalf and consider us. And this is something that Jeremiah has repeatedly asked the Lord to do. Lamentations 111, 112, 120, uh, 363, 416. Turn your attention to us and look at us. Behold the reproach that we endure. And I think, folks, right, this is, this is not just, right, it is a pathetic, pitiful appeal. But there is a, I would think, a theological perspective to it. Right? What is the point of God's covenant people? What does, what does he say to them and about them 
and their relationship to the nations around the world is that they are to be put on display for the sake of the glory of his name. And when God said to Moses, you know what, I am just tired of dealing with these people. I'm just going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over with you. What was Moses' response? Well, what will everybody else say? What will the Egyptians say if you do that? And, you know, I mean, you, 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 God, you won't look very good if that's what you do. You will come off looking poorly. So the appeal is, right, not just look at how bad we are, but, right, there's a little bit of theological perspective to it. Our reproach comes back upon you. So, and I think, and I don't think that any of us would do this, but the request that he make there, right, there are three of them in verse number one. Remember and consider and behold. They're not three radically different things, but they're all portions of the same idea. Turn your attention upon us favorably. And then the bulk of the lament, beginning in verse number two down through verse number 18, highlights Israel's disasters, a prayer for God to remember, a recollection of Israel's disasters. Verse number, verse number two, our inheritance is turned to strangers. Look at our pitiful condition, verses two through ten. Look at our pitiful condition. Our inheritance is turned to strangers. Our houses to aliens, foreigners, not space aliens, of course. We are orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are as widows. We have drunken our water for money. Our wood is sold unto us. Our necks are under persecution. We labor and have no rest. We have given the hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. Servants have ruled over us. There is none that doth deliver us out of their hand. We get our bread with the peril of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. Look at our pitiful condition. Our land belongs to strangers. Our homes have been occupied by foreigners. We are orphans. We are like widows. We are completely helpless. We are like homeless people. We now have to buy the very essentials of life, water and firewood. These are things that didn't happen in normal times in Israel. We are persecuted. We have no rest. We are never in safety. Every day is filled with tension and stress. This is our existence daily. And we have had to put ourselves in the hands of our enemies, the Egyptians and the Assyrians, just to get enough to eat. And again, folks, remember the perspective there. Let me just give you one. Deuteronomy 15.6, For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he promised thee, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow. And thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. That was one possible outcome to being an Israelite. 
The other one is the one they're experiencing. A recitation of their disasters. Look at our pitiful condition. We are paying for the iniquities of others, and I've already made reference to that. Right? We, we are being punished for things that our dead ancestors have done. And in what way is that just and righteous? They are covenant people. And God, this, this folks, I think, w- without, right, without going back and turning it into another subject, but I think that's the, that is the necessary framework for understanding. I am a jealous God that visits, visits the iniquity of the children upon the father, of the fathers upon the children for generations. Is This is what it's going to be like to be covenant people. You surrender this notion of individual autonomy. And and by the way, folks, I would point out it is equally true of the church and is equally unpopular in American churches in particular, where our individualism is paramount, almost idolatrous at times. To claim a Christianity without any commitment to Christ or to the community because nobody's going to tell me what a Christian is. I will tell what a Christian is. This is why Paul can say to the church, don't you understand that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Because upon entering the body of Christ, folks, there is a sense in which our individual identity has been taken over by something bigger We are ruled by unqualified people, servants. John Calvin, a man who <clears throat> believed that part of the Great Commission was the responsibility to turn gov- human governments into Christian institutions, said that wicked rulers were God's judgment on rebellious people. We are ruled by the serving class. The simple task of obtaining daily food is a life-threatening activity. I still remember a man saying one time that during the Great Tribulation, lead will be the currency of the Tribulation. Now everybody was, this was about 15 years ago when everybody was hoarding gold. He said, don't hoard gold. During the Tribulation, lead will be the currency in use. Bullets. And our skin is blackened because of the famine. We are starving to the point that our bodies are reflecting our malnutrition. And I would point out again, folks, that this event has very much a day of the Lord type element to it. So that when God will write about things that will come and the earth and the sky will be impacted and there's the great day, a time of Jacob's trouble, nothing like it, that here is a preview of it, what God has done. To Jerusalem. So look at our pitiful condition, verses 2 through 10. Look at our pitiful people, verses 11 through 14. They ravished the women in Zion and the maids in the cities of Judah. Princes are hanged up by their hand. The faces of the elders were not honored. They took the young men to grind, and the children fell under the wood. The elders have ceased from the gate, the young men from their music. 
the condition of our people. Our women have been raped by the Babylonians. Those who should be honored are being dishonored. And our children have become the world's workforce. And then finally, verses 15 through 18, look at our grief and sorrow. Remember, O Lord, consider, O Lord, behold, O Lord. The joy of our heart is ceased. Our dance is turned into mourning. The crown is fallen from our heads. Woe unto us that we have sinned. For this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim. Because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. Look at our grief and our sorrow. All of our joy is gone. All of our joy is gone. All of our dancing has ended. And that's put, folks, when in no cultural framework of dance being a sinful thing but of dance before the Lord being a joyful thing. The crown has fallen. We were at one time under David, folks. If you go back and compare these events to the kingdom of David and to Solomon, they were the peak of the then known world. Everybody looked to Israel. Everybody respected Israel. Our hearts are weak. Verse number 17, for this our heart is faint, for these things our eyes are dim. We can hardly bear to look at what Israel's become, and it's become like a barren wilderness. Wild animals are roaming the streets of the capital city. So he prays, verse number 1, he remembers, recalls their pitiful condition, And then in verses 18 through 22, he expresses a reason to hope. There is a reason to hope. Or verses 19 through 22. There is a reason to hope. Thou, O Lord, remainest forever. Thy throne from generation to generation. Wherefore dost thou forget us forever and forsake us so long time? Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned Renew our days as of old. But thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth against us. So the reason to hope is the nature of the Lord. He remains forever. And again, imagine, imagine looking, you know, I mean, let's just make it very personal, folks. Imagine looking at your house that has burned to the ground and everything in it. Well, Lord, you live for you, you're forever, you reign forever. My house is gone, but you reign forever. Question, why do you forget us? You control our destiny, and if you turn us to you, we will be turned, which is really, folks, what has always been an essential requirement is the work of God in address. It's, it's, there's, there's always this tension in the Bible that God calls upon people to respond and obey, and yet apart from the Lord's gracious intervention, they have no interest in responding or obeying. 
That's true in the New Testament, and it's true in the Old Testament. And if the Lord doesn't turn, there is a little bit of grammatical discussion, folks, about verse number 22. And I do just want to point this out to you. Grammatically, you can make the case that he is posing verse number 22 as a hypothetical. Your King James Bible doesn't treat it as a hypothetical. However it is read, folks, I would just argue against reading it as a total final rejection of Israel, which is the way some read it. That, that this event is God's final and ultimate rejection of Israel, and from this point in time, he will turn his attention to the church who will in some way replace Israel, and those blessings that he had promised to Israel will now be extended to the church. I would understand that God has a plan for Israel, and they do come back. I would also point this out, just, just so you know this, because the Hebrew doesn't really have a word, utterly. In the Hebrew, if we read it like we read it, it would be this, thou hast rejected, rejected us, a doubling of the verb for the sake of emphasis. You have rejected, rejected us. And this is because you are very angry. You are very angry. And here is finally, folks, then, just to point this out in closing, I mean, here is one of the characteristics of a genuine believing man is that even when the hand of the Lord is heavy against him, he, he turns to the Lord. He doesn't abandon the Lord. He turns to the Lord and he recognizes the Lord as ultimate hope. So with that, we're gonna, I'm going to stop there tonight. There's